What a joy it is to be here with you guys today, especially on a day like this. I was, uh, I was just thinking about some of the, uh, the memorable moments in, in, in my parenting as I was uh, having a conversation yesterday with a, a good friend who has a marriage ministry. Uh, he's from Nigeria, and we were doing an Instagram Live, and he was asking me all these questions, and all these questions were bringing back some memories but, uh, you know, I was thinking about my oldest. Some of you who already know I have two boys. I'm blessed to have two boys and two grandkids. My boys are 31 and 10. Okay, 31 and 10. And, uh, and, and my grandkids are 8 and 6. And so it's David, Daniel, Ezra, and Emery. And so I've, I've got all four. I'm super blessed. But we were having, I was, I was thinking about David, my oldest one. By the time when he was about 16 or so, he might correct me and say maybe he was 15 or 17. But was about 16 years of age, and we were, we were in the church, sitting toward the back. And I remember that uh, whoever was up here was talking about uh, being their kid's best friend. You know, it's like saying, you know, I'm my, uh, my son's best friend or my, my, my daughter's best friend. And, and I remember turning and looking at David as he was sitting there next to me, and I said, hey, am I your best friend? He looks at me and without hesitation, he says, no. <laughs> and so I was a little confounded by that. And I looked back again and I, and I was, continued to listen to the speaker. And I turned back and looked at him and I said, I'm not your best friend. He says, no. He says, dad, quiet. The sermon is going right now. And I said, okay, all right. And so the rest of the sermon, I paid no attention to the message. I was just thinking about where it went wrong. I was thinking, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Why is this kid telling me that I'm not his best friend? So once we left, I remember asking him, I said, son, I need to ask you a question. It was almost like he gave me this look like, okay, here we go again. And I said, so you said I am not your best friend. He said, no, dad, you are my father. He says, and a father supersedes a best friend. He said, so I don't want you to be my best friend. You just continue to be my father. You know, I, I remember that. I said, dude, you should have told me that in the service. You know, you messed me up. <laughs> I love that about him, you know. It's, you know, sometimes we, we focus so much on being our kid's best friend, when in all reality, all they need is a father. We don't need to be their buddies. They need a father because a father is so much more than a best friend. And so my, my youngest one, Daniel, and I have to say something about Daniel, of course. He's sitting somewhere over there in the back. I have to say that one day we were driving to the mall and it was just the two of us. And he's sitting in the back. And we parked and, uh, and there was a, a yellow Camaro, and I hope I'm not butchering that, but I think it was a yellow Camaro, and it had the Transformer insignia on it. And I remember that he looked at me and he said, look, Dad. He said, look, like, uh, like Bumblebee. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not really into movies and superheroes and all those things. But I said, yeah, 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 I do. So he started to, you know, give me all the different names of the other, you know, uh, Transformers and explain what they did and all these things. And I remember that he said, you know, Dad, I, I said to him, okay, come on, let's go. He said, no, Dad, hold on. I want to tell you something. He said, you know, you are like one of those transformers. And I thought, oh no, here we go. What is he going to say? He said, you're one of, like one of those transformers. And I said, really? I said, which one? <laughs> he said, you're like Optimus Prime. And I said, Optimus Prime, really? <laughs> he said, Optimus Prime. And I said, why Optimus Prime? 
And he said, because Optimus Prime never changes. You always know what to expect from him. He's always stable and he's not driven by emotions. And I thought, wow. And that was meaningful to him. He says, I always know what to expect of you. I always know. And so one day I was talking to my oldest and he says, you know, you know, dad, he says, Daniel, my young brother, 21 years apart, he said, he really has the better version of you. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, he has it easy. I said, how's that? He said, he has it easy because he says, growing up, I had the you version before Christ. He has the version after Christ. And so there's a big difference, dad. And it's interesting that he would notice that, how there was transformation in the process. He said, I got you before, he got you after, he got the best part of you. As we know, the foundational years are the first 12. Those are the most foundational years. And so this Nigerian friend of mine asked me this other question. He said to me, what is the most memorable moment of your childhood? You know, something that might have happened between you and your father. And I have to say, my dad is 80 years old. My mom is also. Lovely people always supporting us, always loving on us, you know, grew up in a very functional, loving environment. And I remember telling this friend of mine yesterday, I said, you know what, one of the greatest memories that I have of my dad is about 14 years of age, I was sick. And I was sick like for about three weeks straight and I was very sick. I couldn't get out of bed and I had the doctor would go over to our house this was, I grew up uh, 18 years in Mexico. We were living in Mexico. And, and I remember that I would go to bed in pain. And every time that I opened my eyes, because I couldn't sleep, I would doze off for a bit, open my eyes, and I would turn. And my dad was always sitting next to me. There was a chair that he had placed, and he was there. It didn't matter the time. It could have been 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 a.m., 3 in the morning. Every time I opened my eyes and I turned to look to my right-hand side, my father was sitting there with his eyes open and he would ask, are you okay? Do you need anything? Now, I want to say my mother would have done the exact same thing, but my father took his role as protector very seriously and he sat there the whole time. Now, I didn't know Christ as my Lord and Savior. We did not know Jesus the way we do now. But about 20 years later, that memory of my father sitting there made one of the Psalms come to life. And it's one of the Psalms that says that the God of Israel, the protector of Israel, never sleeps nor slumbers. That he's always watching over us. And that was that memorable moment that I had of my father. Him always watching over me. So it was so much easier for me to accept the love of a heavenly father. Because I knew the love of my earthly father. And so in having a conversation yesterday with my, with my youngest son and my wife, I said, you know, I said, I'm blessed. I'm very blessed as a dad. I, I count every day as a blessing, you know. The, the verse says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will and be glad in it. Every day. It's like, is today a special day? Well, we, you know, honor dads. 
but every day is a special day. And we have to remember that because God's mercies are new every morning. We have an opportunity to be better every day. Dads, moms, children, we have that opportunity. I said, I am blessed. But I said, you know, I was talking about some of the things, the little things in life that really matter to me. I turned to Daniel as we were driving and I said, what do you think is that one word or, or, or those, those was not one word, two words that I love hearing, you know, that one word I said that I love hearing from you and my grandkids. That one thing that my heart yearns for that I want to hear that it fills my heart. And he says, I love you. I said, no. Uh, he said, I respect you. No. My wife says, it must be thank you. I said, exactly. Thank you. Thank you is that to those two words that I love hearing. I love when little Emery, my little Emita, she calls me Tito. She looks up at me and she says when I give her something, when we do something, she says, thank you, Tito, with this sweet, tender voice. Then my, my, my grandson, Ezra, he'll say, thank you, Tito. And then, of course, when Daniel and David say, thank you, it fills my heart. Because if there's one thing that I want to instill in them is a heart of gratitude, is a heart to serve. That's the legacy that I want to leave behind is, is I want them, as the apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. I want them to have a heart of gratitude and a heart that serves. I had Daniel some time ago, he opened up the door at a restaurant and he was letting people in. And a lot of people, and you know, in the valley, you know, the average number is about five. And so he's letting all these people in. We were already there, but I was teaching him to hold the door open for other people. And so there he is standing there until finally the last one came in. And Daniel came over to me. He didn't say anything, but I asked him a question. I said, did you notice if any of the people that you held the door open for, did they make eye contact with you? He said, no. Did anyone say thank you? He said, no. I said, how did that make you feel? He really didn't have an answer. He's kind of like confused. I said, don't ever open a door expecting a thank you. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Serve, serve. That's a legacy that I want to leave is a legacy of serving, a legacy of gratitude. The Bible says in Psalm 100 verse four, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his holy name. Gratitude. Everyone has a legacy they want to leave behind. Years ago, I used the analogy of a baton. I brought a baton that is used in relay races. So the beauty of, you know, a relay race, you know, they, the runners will train for countless days. They will train on velocity, you know. They will train in technique. They will train pace, gait but they will also train lots of hours on how to pass on the baton. Because what happens if you drop the baton in a relay race? Huh? It's over. You lose. You can't drop the baton. And so for us as dads, the baton is that legacy. The beauty of God is that even if in the process we drop the baton, his mercies are new every morning. And he allows us to pick up the baton again and again and again. But make sure that you pass on the spiritual baton to the next generation. I was, I was listening to a, a pastor that I, that I follow, Pastor Vody Bauckham, and he was saying, how many parents have fallen on their face before God 
praying that their children would make it into the right school, but have not spent one hour on their knees begging God that their children would make it into heaven. He says, I want my children saved first and foremost. He says, this is what male headship is all about. Amen. And so Daniel says to me, my 10-year-old, he says, Dad, there's a verse that, that, that I really would like for you to share with the congregation on Sunday. So here goes. He says, it's out of Proverbs 23, 24. And this is what it says. The father of godly children has cause for joy. What a pleasure to have children who are wise. So I looked at him and I said, pues orale. Orale, hijo. <laughs> so so did, I said, did you hear what we just read? Did you hear that verse? I said, do you understand that? I have no greater joy. I'm sorry, the father of the godly children has cause for joy. What a pleasure to have children who are wise. Wise. We have such a great influence on their lives. Do we see that? That we have such an influence on the lives of our children. And you want to be the greatest influence. Can I just remind you about this very quickly? Listen. In the most formative of all years of a child's life, 13 years span, 5 through 18, 5 through 18 years of age, 13 years span, if they come to church twice a week, they will be exposed to church for 1,500 hours in 13 years. Hold on, listen. 13 years, they will be exposed to church for 1,500 hours. They will be exposed to social media for 15,000 hours. And they will be exposed to school for 16,000 hours. And so my challenge to you is, or my question is, who do you think has the greater influence? Years ago in the 70s, a guy by the name of Dr. Spock wrote a book about parenting, and he said, it's no longer about quantity, it's about And that was the greatest lie. It's about quality and quantity. Quality and quantity. You dads want to be the greatest role model in the lives of your children. You see, according to Scripture, dads ought to be teachers. There was one amen. <laughs> Let me say it again. Dads ought to be teachers. But before a dad can become a teacher, he must first be a disciple, a student. The Bible says that a student is not above the teacher, but in due time, the student will be like the teacher. You want to be the teacher. Dads should exemplify the love of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Dads provide for their family, discipline their children, spend time with them. Dads ought to be compassionate, and they pray for them constantly. They never give up on their children. There's a verse, and there's a psalm that says, and it was written by Solomon. It's one of those few uh, psalms that was written by him. He says, children are an inheritance of the Lord. He says, children are a blessing from God. Amen? Children are a blessing from the Lord. No matter how easy they are to train or how difficult or oppositional they may be, they are a blessing. 
Even when you're pulling your hair out, you go, he's a blessing. You have to remind yourself. Doesn't matter if they made it as, as uh, young uh, or teens, if they made it into the honor society, they were inducted, or they got kicked out of school. They are still a blessing of God. And your only command or one of your strongest commands in Proverbs 22.6 is to what? Train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he's older, he won't depart from it. What is the way that, the, the, that this proverb is talking about? What is that way? Is it your way? It's Yahweh. It's God's way. Train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he's older, he won't depart from it. That's one of our greatest tasks. You see, the love of a father, and I say this respectfully to all the moms, you have a great influence on the lives of your children, but a, a father's touch. I mean, a, a mom can give, I've said this over and over, and sometimes I get those looks from moms, right? I said, moms can give 20 tender and sweet kisses to the little boy, but all it takes is one hug from dad. And dad comes and hugs that boy, man, and he grows two feet. That's the power of a dad. I love that, that uh, the master chef, I think it's called master chef, and they're in this uh, competition, and there's a young lady that's cooking, and she gets a jar, and she needs to open it up, but she can't open the jar because she doesn't have the strength. And she turns, and she looks, and she sees her family up there, you know, up on the uh, balcony, and she runs over, and she tosses the jar to who? To her dad. She didn't toss it to mom. <laughs> She tossed it to dad, and he just went, cracked it open like that, gave it back. She knew. She could count on her father. The embrace of a father holds a magnitude of significance that surpasses those tender kisses. Our influence is great on the lives of our children. I, I just love it, you know, when I was, you know, shaving, and I would see when David, David as a little boy just looking up at me, probably thinking, you know, that's who I'm going to become. And me looking at him thinking, you know, that's who I used to be. We have such a great influence in the lives of our kids. And I want you to understand this. Only men can be fathers. Amen. Only women can be mothers. When I was, when I widowed, when I widowed at age 35, uh, I remember that one of the first interactions that I had with a church member was this. She said to me, she said, brother, now you're going to have to be father and mother. And I said, wait, hold it. I can't be a mom. I, I don't, I'm not wired that way. I'm wired to be a dad. And I'm going to be a dad at 100%. I'm going to do my best to be the dad that God has called me to be. But I cannot be a mother. You see, we are all equal in the eyes of Christ. But we have different roles. We have different capabilities. That's why the girl ran to dad and threw the jar at him, didn't throw it to mom, because she knew that dad was going to crack that thing open. We have different roles. And we have to understand that. We are equal in Christ, but we have different roles. And here are three 
important roles that a man, a father cannot delegate. Now, I said this in the first service. Some of the things that I'm going to share today is, 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 is you can use it almost as a self-assessment tool. You have to be able to gauge. How many runners are there in the room? Raise your hand if you're a runner. How many marathon runners? Oh, the hands went down. Okay. <laughs> how many runners? About half of the congregation. How many marathon runners? When you're training for a 26.2 for a marathon, you have to have, of course, the right shoes. I, did I see Dr. Adia somewhere in the room? Where is he? Raise your hand. Did I see him? So I know he's a runner. He's a, he's a marathon runner. You have to have the right shoes, but you have to wear something. What do you have to wear that's very, very important? The right what? Socks. <laughs> that's true. The right watch. You see, your watch has to be a special watch because it gauges everything that you do. It gauges your speed, your gait, your pace, calories, uh, you know, inclination, your heartbeat, everything. And as you're looking at your watch, you can gauge whether you've done better than yesterday or you've done worse. And if you've done worse, then what do you do? You tweak. You adjust. You always have to have a measurement. You have to have an instrument that allows you to gauge where you stand. I have an own, my own practice where I, at the end of the day, I ask myself certain questions about how I have done as an individual in Christ. I ask myself questions like, did I live? Did I love? Did I make a difference? Did I share Jesus with somebody? Was somebody's life influenced because of something that I said? At least one life. I ask myself, did I love my wife unconditionally? Did I, did I, did I honor, you know, my, my, my wife? Did I, did, I, did I care for my children? Did they see that? Did they see the love of Christ in me and through me? I ask myself these questions so that I can gauge where I stand. And so we have to ask ourselves those questions. So here are three things that a father must do and cannot delegate. The father has been wired to preside over his family. Preside is to be the leader Male headship. He's to lead his household. The Bible says that he is the priest of his household. Say amen. amen. So you take the role of leader of your household. You cannot delegate that responsibility. You can't give that away. You are to protect. If in the middle of the night you hear something in the backyard or in the house, usually it should be the father who gets up and pulls out the shotgun or the slingshot or the bat and runs to see what's going on. He doesn't hide in the closet. He doesn't hide under the bed. He's the one that gets up because he knows that he's been wired to what? Protect. To lead, to protect, and the last one is to provide. Preside, protect, and provide. Those are the three things. When I think about Father's Day, you know, there are so many stories in the Bible. You could take Abraham and Isaac. You can, you, can, you can take Abraham and talk about his unwavering faith, his unwavering obedience, doing something in spite of how, how crazy it might have sounded. You know, take your son all the way over there to sacrifice him. Unwavering faith, unwavering obedience, and you know the story at the end how that ended. We can use that story, but we can also use the story of David, and I love using that story because David's life is one that we can draw so many lessons from. When you think about David as a child before his anointing or before being anointed by Samuel, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, 
knocks at the door. Jesse opens. He's surprised because the prophet is standing there. They don't know if they've done something wrong. And Samuel says, I'm here to anoint the new king. Now, I'm going to paraphrase and go through this quite quickly. But I want you to understand, he's knocking at the door and he says, bring all of your sons. He brings seven of his sons and he lines them up. The first one is Eliab. Now, they all, they all look priestly. They all look royal. They all look like kingship material. They all look like they have a pedigree and an education and everything. But Samuel goes one at a time. One by one. And I can just imagine, right? I imagine he was placing his hand on their head and he was going one and God was saying no. And he was waiting for God's, you know, uh, sign there. He says, no, 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 no. All the way down to the seventh one. So now Samuel's confused. And he's standing there and he looks at Jesse and he says, hey, wait, hold it. Do you by any chance have any other kids? And I believe there's a hesitation. Jesse hesitates and he goes, oh yeah, 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 yeah. How, how could I have forgotten? Yeah, but, but he's the shepherd boy. Now shepherds back in the day, to be a shepherd, it was the same as being a servant, probably even lower. And so he's out there shepherding sheep. He's taking care of the goats. He's on the hillside in the sun. His brothers would occasionally look out the window and they would see the brother out there, all woolly, uneducated, David in the sun. They would see that he was talking out loud. He's speaking and he's singing and they were calling him crazy maybe. But he was talking to God this whole time. And so they called David in. So Jesse goes, opens the door, and he says, hey, David. David comes running over and he says, what's, what's going on, Dad? He says, hey, someone's here to see you. And I imagine like in the movies that those clouds open up and that there's a glimmer and a shine from heavens. And, and Samuel knows right there and then that that's his man. Although the father couldn't see it, his own earthly father couldn't see it. God did. You see, in the eyes of Samuel, Samuel was looking to perhaps anoint some qualities. A good-looking guy, someone who was tall and strong and looked like a warrior. Whatever was on the outside, that's what he was looking for. But God wasn't there to anoint characteristics, a pedigree, an education, uh, accolades, accomplishment. He was there to anoint a heart. And so we know in the scripture, amen, we know in the scripture that it says that David was called a man after God's own heart. God's own heart. So he says, I'm here not to anoint the outside, but to anoint the heart. And so there's David, and, I, and I'm, hope, I'm trying to remember how many years it took, but he went from anointed to appointed, but that took 16, 17, maybe 20 years. I'm not too sure, but from anointed to appointed. So David had to walk it out. Now, if you look in the scripture, it says there in the Psalms that David, you can, you can, see, you can see his heartache. You can see his brokenness because he talks about being, being rejected by his own brethren. The brothers were probably thinking, David? scrawny, skinny, little David? No, not David. Of course, one of us. 
Yeah, you remember that David shows up to, to confront Goliath. Do you remember that? He shows up. He doesn't show up to confront Goliath. He shows up to take food to his brothers. And Eliab, the oldest one, looks at him and says, dude, what are you doing here? This is no place for you. You remember that? Then Goliath comes out and he's challenging the Israelites. And I remember, you know, David said, he says, is there not a cause? I mean, David rises up with little or nothing. You know that story, but he goes from anointed to appointed. It takes quite a while, but he talks about being rejected by his own brethren. And in the Jewish culture, there is a story of why the brothers might have rejected him, why his own father may have rejected him. And so when you start to make the connection about the influence of a father or the, or the lack of a father, this story may appeal to some of you because, let's face it, some have been hurt. Some of you have felt rejected. Some of you grew up in dysfunctional homes and you're still seeking validation from the father all while God is saying, I am the father to the fatherless. And so there is no need for that validation anymore. There are people that I see in counseling that at times they're saying, I can't let go of this hurt. How do I do it now that my father has passed away? I said, you just let go. You go before the father and you ask him to heal you. You pray like David prayed. Search my heart, oh God, and put my thoughts to a test. He says, test my thoughts, search my heart, and tell me, Lord, if there's any iniquity, any anxious thoughts within me. And we go in that time of prayer and allow God to minister to you. God is the father to the fatherless. There's no need for the validation to come from the earthly father anymore. If you have a father who is present, you're blessed. If you don't have that father that, you are pre that is, that is a, a father who is not present, but you're a born-again believer in Christ and you know the Lord, you are blessed. Amen. You are blessed because God is there for you. At the end of the day, I know that my children aren't mine. They belong to him. They have just been granted this time with me so that I may invest in them, but that's it. They're not mine. They belong to God. You know, I've shared this story before about a halfway house experience that I had at one point. T.W. Naram and myself would go to a halfway house in Edinburgh and we would meet with a bunch of men that were straight out of prison. Straight out of prison. And the place was really not conducive to any... Um, rehabilitation because it was a, a rundown place. But they would come into this room 20 at a time to meet with us. And a lot of people would say, well, they were in search of hope. It was a Bible study. They were in search of an answer or the, the love of the Lord. In all reality, they weren't. They were there because we had chocolate cake and Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so they would show up. And so we would tell them, before you can get the chocolate cake and Dr. Pepper, you have to listen. You have to have to listen. And, and so T.W. would share the gospel. He would go over the Roman road to salvation out of the book of Romans. And then I would focus primarily on Romans 12 too. 
Don't conform to the ways of the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and improve God's perfect, pleasing, good will for your life. And I remember that I would ask these guys the first time around a, a question or three questions. I would ask them, who's been the greatest influence in your life? And they would all say, my dad. Next question was, was the influence negative or was it positive? The answer was negative. And this was all in unison in one accord. And the last question was, did your father ever tell you that you would end up in prison? And they would all say, yes, yes. The father's influence is powerful, powerful. I don't know what your father told you, but at the end of the day, what matters is what the father has told us. It's that simple. It's not who you say that I am. It's who he says that I am. Uh, you know, you, you have to almost be like Moses before the burning bush. And God speaks to him and says, go speak to Pharaoh. Tell him to free my people. And Moses, with a slight stutter, he says, but, but who am I? And, and, and I'm paraphrasing, and God says to him, in a nutshell, he says, really, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am in you and through you. And so then Moses asked the question, he says, and who are you? Who do I tell them sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. And so we, we oftentimes think, you know, what does that mean? And there are so many explanations to that. A lot of theologians have different, different opinions. What I see is a very simple answer. is I am who I am. And I think about all the names of the Lord in, in the scriptures. He says, I am Jehovah Jireh. I am Jehovah Shalom. I am Jehovah Nisi. I am Elohim, Adonai, El Sikinu. I am El Shaddai. He was saying, I am everything you will ever need, Moses. And so we have to remind ourselves, especially dads, that we are everything in him. Regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of whatever might have happened, we are who we are because of him. And when Paul was going through everything and when he recounts everything in, in, in Philippians 4, we love to read Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we see athletes who put it on their shoes, their jerseys, and on their face. But we don't understand what Paul was talking about. You have to read Go back and read where he makes an account of everything, every hardship. He went through every hardship, but he says, but I can do all things. He says, I can overcome these things in Christ because it is he who gives me the strength. Amen. Amen. So many years ago, the Barna group it is a Christian group that does a lot of research and statistics. And I'm talking about maybe 20 years ago. They, uh, they did a study over at one of the big prisons in, in L.A., I think it was San Quentin. And they, they found that there were large groups of, of uh, the, the, there were populations that were equal in size, you know, the, the Hispanics, the blacks, Asian, white. It was pretty much, you know, leveled the, the number, the population. But there was a small group of Jewish inmates, a very small group. And so they started to study that. It's like, why? 
why is that such a small population? And so what they figured was that in the Jewish tradition, growing up and throughout their whole lives, the Jewish people, they have, a, um, they have what they call uh, Shabbat. And so Friday and Saturday is kind of like their Sabbath, and so they rest. And so during this Shabbat, they have a whole ritual that they do, and they pray. And they pray this prayer called Birhat Kohanim. Now, I want you to listen to this because this is powerful. They pray this prayer during the Shabbat, but they also pray this prayer every day over their children. Dads, get ready because there's a challenge that's coming. They pray this prayer over their children every day, and it's straight out of number six. Number six, they take three verses for number six. It's the priestly blessing. And what they pray over their children is this. They say, may God bless you and protect you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God turn his face toward you and grant you peace. They do this every day of their kids' lives. And so there's a direct correlation between the small population in prison and the way that they were brought up by hearing their father bless them every day. I challenged some, a group of dads the other day at a different place. I said, you should take Jeremiah 29, 11 and remove you and add your kid's name, even when they're asleep. Even when they're asleep. And that might be the only time. Because if you have rambunctious kids and they don't sit down, but even just when they're asleep, put your hand over them and simply pray this prayer, say, for I know, if the little boy's name is Johnny, for I know the plans that I have for Johnny, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper him, not to harm him. Plans to give him a hope and a future. Boy, if you did that, amen. If you did that, and you start to sow those seeds into that heart, and you continue to water that will eventually grow and produce good fruit. It doesn't matter, dads, where you're coming from. What you need to know is that God is the one that empowers you. God is the one that gives you the wisdom when you cry out for it. God is the one. I want to challenge you to bless your children. You know, David, David at the end Theologians say that it was toward the end of his life, of course, when he wrote uh, Psalm 23. And if you read Psalm 23, it's, it's, it's a declaration of faith. It's not a cry out for help. He's not crying, little Lord is my shepherd. You know, he's not crying. It's a declaration of faith. David knows that in spite of all of the things that he went through, he says, at the end, he says, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, I want you to understand this about David. I, I, I shared the story about him and how he grew up and then he becomes king. David was not perfect, by the way. David, we know David as the giant slayer. We know David as the great king of Israel. And when we go to Sunday school class as children, you probably colored that, uh, that, that picture there where he's slaying the giant with a stone and a sling. Yeah. 
But then we don't dive deep into the life of David and figure out that he was a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, that he was a bad dad. At the end of the day, Absalom himself created a revolt against his own dad after one of his sons, Amnon, had raped his daughter, Tamar. And then Absalom kills his brother in David's own house. And then Absalom flees. And now he's created a revolt. All of this is happening under David's house. I can only think for a moment that David didn't have that influence and that role model that he should have had in his own father. And so now he's made all these mistakes. And of course, he's taken for a time. He took his eyes off of God and he was full of himself and thought, I can do this without you. But oh, he had something else coming. At the end of the story, when David is there and he tells Joab, he tells Joab, go and bring my son to me. He's out there creating a militia against his father. He says, go and bring him to me. But he says, please spare his life. Don't touch him. Just bring him to me. So Joab goes out there. And I don't know what got into Joab. But the Bible says that Absalom had long flowing hair and his hair got caught in the brush. And there he is trying to untangle his hair. And Joab saw the opportunity and he drove three arrows straight into his heart. Killing Absalom. And so word gets to David, and there's David. I can only imagine him worried and anxious and sitting on his throne and just thinking, where's Absalom? Then all of a sudden they show up and they tell him, they give him the bad news. And the Bible says that David cried out, and there's exclamation points. He cried out, Absalom! Absalom, my dear Absalom, I would have died in your place. Absalom, his heart was broken. Even at the end, even though the son had rebelled against the father, the father still wanted him back. The prodigal son is that story, the father waiting there for the son. We have all been the prodigal. We have all been that rebellious child. But the beauty of it is that God is always with arms wide open waiting for us to come back. Amen. So I want to do this today. I want to pray today that first of all, for all of you, not just dads, but I want to invite you to something that I was invited to back in 2001 sitting in this church. And it was to accept Jesus in my heart. And I remember hearing, all those who are in Christ are a new creation. All things have passed away and the new has come. And I remember thinking at 29 years of age, I need that. I need the old to be passed and I want the new to come. I can't do this anymore. And you're probably in the same situation today. I can't leave this place without inviting you to accept him as your Lord and Savior. So I'm just going to ask you right there where you're at, if you would close your eyes, bow your heads, just right there where you're at, nobody looking around. And I'm just going to ask you this question. How many of you would say that you need Jesus today, that you've never opened up your heart and 
invited him to become your Lord and Savior. And you say, I need him today. Or some of you are in this room are probably thinking, you know what? I, I accepted him a while back, but I've fallen so far away from him. I want to rededicate my life and I want to leave this place restored with a completely new heart set and mindset toward the Lord. Raise your hand if that's you. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, put your hands down. I want to pray for you right now. I don't want anyone getting up, leaving. This is a very important time. I just want to pray for you. This is, this is no magical prayer. This prayer coming from your heart, expressed with your mouth, making him Lord and Savior, makes you a born-again believer. God gives you a new heart, puts everything in the past, and brings a new you. It's a slate that has been erased, and you start off brand new. Let me pray for you if you would repeat with me today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for second chances. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, I come before you a sinner, and I repent of my sin. I open up my heart, and I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Make me brand new. As of today, I will follow you the rest of my life. And I know that I will dwell in your house forever. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. This is a challenge for dads. Dad, you're right there, sitting there. Don't look around. If the message spoke to you and you feel like there have been some moments in your life that you regret as a dad, that you feel that you have not measured up, you have not done right, or if you feel that you're coming from a background in which your, your dad hurts you and you have yet to overcome that, you have not healed from that. There's a quote that I heard a while back that says that you need to heal from what hurts you so that you don't bleed on the people that didn't cut you. Today is a time to heal. Let the Lord start the process in your life. If you're a dad and you feel that that's you, I'm going to call you to do something that may be uncomfortable. I'm going to call you to get on your knees right where you're at. Just get on your knees if that's you, and I want to pray for you. I'll be the first one to get on my knees. I'll be the first one. Just right where you're at, just get on your knees. Getting on your knees is a sign of submission, a sign of reverence. It's positioning yourself. Father, we come before you in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your word says that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, that every day is an opportunity, Father, to grow in you. That when we come to you, Father, with a humble and a contrite spirit, your word says that you don't despise us. You don't turn your back on us. You are the Father that's always present. You are the Father to the fatherless. We can call you Abba, Daddy. You have been there. You've always been there. You have seen what we've gone through, where we've been, how we've been hurt, Father. You've seen the deficiencies that we've had to experience growing up, Father, whether the situation was good or bad. You were there at all times, Father. You have safeguarded us. 
Lord, we know that in you, all things are made new. You don't piece things together, you make them new. Father, I pray for my brothers that are here today. Lord, they're, they're trying their best to be that godly father, that godly influence, that godly husband, Father. I pray for them today, Lord, that as they are repenting, whether they're on their knees or not, Father, but their hearts are positioned to repent, Father. And as we repent, Lord, you start the healing process. Lord, I know that you don't look for perfection, just disposition. You look for a heart to anoint. It has nothing to do with our capabilities, but it has all to do with the condition of our hearts. Father, I pray for my brothers today and for those watching online, Lord, that you would start, Father, the healing process in them. That they would be able to break free from the hurt from the past, those wounds that are still bleeding, Father, on their own families and hurting them. I pray, Lord, that they would be able to rise up and that they would find influence, Father, in you. Lord, we just thank you that you are God, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are a promise keeper. Lord, and I declare that Jeremiah 29, 11 over their lives, that you know the plans that you have for each and every one of them. Plans to prosper them, not to harm them. Plans to give them a hope and a future. Lord, we thank you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.